Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Psalm 103. If not, that's okay. We uh, do have, uh, we will put on the screen behind me. And also, we do have some Bibles in the back. If you don't have one and you'd like to take one with you, we'd love for you to do that uh, this morning. Um, we're, somebody said this morning that Psalm 103 is one of their favorite psalms. And uh, I can see why, and hopefully as we read it together, you'll see why as well. So let me invite you to stand as we read Psalm 103, this is of David, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But... The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, who, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let me pray and ask him to bless us as we take a deeper look into Psalm 103. Oh, there's so many wonderful things in this passage about you. You've revealed yourself to us, uh, dispelling all the doubt, dispelling all about your goodness, uh, dispelling the ignorance about uh, who you are. Uh, so that we don't doubt your goodness and your love and your affection for us. Would you bless us as we open up this passage a little more deeply and dig into it to see what it means and how it applies to our lives? Would you be pleased to speak to the hearts of every single person in here? And Lord, even as I preach, I pray that you would speak to my heart because my heart is weak, my soul is weak, and just as much as anybody in this room, I need to hear the message of this gospel, this good news about who you are and what you've done for us. Would you bless us and be with us all, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Please have a seat. I'm in trouble getting the glasses. There we go. Uh, 
old preacher said this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I found that through the years, uh, that is really true. Uh, several years ago, I had a young co-ed named Donna, and she and her uh, fiancé, uh, George. That's not their real names, just in case you happen to have known these people. Uh, Donna and George. And uh, we were doing premarital counseling for them. And as they were getting ready to get married, uh, it became clear that his, his spiritual relationship with God was in a very different place than hers at the moment. She was a pastor's kid, um, but she wasn't praying anymore. Uh, she was a pastor's kid, but she wasn't reading her Bible she was a pastor's kid, but she felt very, very far from God. In fact, there was an underlying level of anger and distrust towards God. And the reason was, as we began to talk about this, was her fear. And her fear was this. Her fear was that uh, God was going to uh, take her fiancé away from her because she said, I love him too much. I love him too much. that sweet? I love him too much. And so I know that God has said that if he... If there's something that I love more than him, he's going to remove it. And so he's going to kill George. You know, and as I thought about that, I was thinking, you know, that, that's the way many of us approach God is we have the sense that he really is, he's loving and capricious at the same time. He gives good gifts only to withdraw them. And uh, as we're reading through this psalm, the psalm is very different because it talks about this cascading celebration of joy and delight, not in a capricious God, but in a generous God, a gracious God, a compassionate God, a loving God, um, the God who gives lavishly and happily to his people at great expense to himself. And this is the universal experience of all of God's people who know him and call upon him. In every area, this is the God that we encounter. This is the God who is. This is the God we long for. This is the triune God. And what we're talking about this morning is the reality that the Lord God is a God of surprising extravagant, undeserved, persistent love, right? A God of surprising, extravagant, undeserved, persistent love. And uh, our outline, and I'm changing it up for you guys back there just a little bit, sorry. It's, we're going to talk about an invitation, a name, and a promise. These are three things. There are, more, there are more things than that that we see in this passage, but at least these three that are very important for us to understand this kind of love from this God. So the first thing is an invitation. Uh, the psalm starts like many other places where, with the word bless. First word in the psalm is the word bless, and it's talking about, sometimes it can be translated as the word happy, and what it refers to most often is uh, God blesses us. He does good things in, his lo- in our lives, and so he blesses us and brings good things to us. But in this passage, the script is flipped, and he's saying for us to bless the Lord. Bless the Lord Oh, my soul. And he says it seven times, at least here in this psalm. Bless the Lord. So some simply translate that as praising God. Uh, some of your translations may say that because that makes sense to us to say the blessed God means that we, we praise him. But it's actually deeper than that. There is a word for praise in Hebrew. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. This is something that gets, I think, a little bit deeper for us. So, but even when we talk about the idea of praising the Lord, I think most of us think about it as we're performers on stage, right? You're on, you know, America's Got Talent or something, and you're being assessed uh, for something you're saying. So God is the spectator, he's the judge, and we're up there trying to bless him. And he's kind of like this medieval king, you know, amuse me, uh, make me happy. And so we're trying to do our best to please God with our lives. 
and uh, we're afraid that uh, you're just not measuring up. But that's not the image that's here. The image is of not of us being performers and God being a spectator. It's a little different. So let me help you think about this. My, uh, several years ago when my brother got married, uh, he was the la- almost the last of us. My, do- my sister was last to get married. Um, but we were all at his, uh, the wedding reception afterwards, you know, and we had a DJ and they were playing, you know, pop ballads from the 70s, 80s. And uh, so we're, I'm, I'm standing on the side with my brothers and we're talking and a couple of my sisters-in-law found the song they liked. And so the sisters-in-law and my sister got out and they started dancing. And then the song came on, We Are Family. Remember that song by We Are Family? I, I dance better than this when I'm with a group. Okay. Um, so We Are Family by Sister Sledge, 1979 is when that came out. And uh, so they started playing this, and my sisters-in-law came to where we were and grabbed us all by the hand. Basically, we cleared the dance floor, and so it's all my family out in the middle of the dance floor uh, dancing to this and singing, We are family. I got all my brothers and my sisters and me. Right. That's, so they pulled us into the celebration and the joy and delight that they were already experiencing. And so once we got there, we were celebrating what we, as a family, had together. And so when he's telling us here in this passage to bless the Lord, that's what he's doing. He's drawing us into God's family and saying, I am blessed in and of myself, and I'm calling you in to experience this and to join in. And so he says here, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. All the great things it means for us to be in the family of God. So the psalmist is calling us to let that in to step into the blessing of God and to be a blessing in that sense. So the psalmist utterly delights in God because he sees who God is. His whole soul delights in God. So to bless the Lord means that we step into his joy, his prosperity, his goodness, his beauty with praise and adoration and thanksgiving and join that dance. So we're singing those songs of celebration of who God is and what he has done for us. And he's talking to not just like saying, yes, we need to do that and sing in our kind of monotone voices, you know, Presbyterians. And, um, and so as, as we go into this, he's saying, no, it's not just something we're doing. It's something that we're embracing that goes down to the very pit of who we are, right? It goes down to the very depths. He says, oh, my soul, all my inmost being, every fiber of my being made alive by this God and experiencing that and, and stepping into that. Have you ever had that? There are times when I'm reflecting in prayer on my life and I have to acknowledge to God, my happiest days are with you. They are. My happiest moments are moments with you. It goes to my soul. It goes to the depths of who I am. My deepest hopes are bound up in you. My cherished identity is wrapped up in you. What delights me in life is because of you, because it comes from you. My favorite thing about me is you. That's my favorite thing about me. We bless him by entering fully into the relationship that he's given us, given himself fully to. We respond to that appropriately. And this giving of self is exactly in keeping with who he is, because he's a God who gives of himself, right? So he's given us an invitation and invited us in, but he's also expressing to us here his desire to give himself to us, right? So there's a name that's talked about here. 
ver- you might miss it because it's, uh, not all, it's not translated often as a name, but it's translated usually as a title in the Bible. It's, in verse 1, it's the word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Now, the word Lord, uh, I was reading an article this week, said that is the most frequent word besides articles and you know, prepositions and things that is used in Scripture. It's the word Lord. Now, it's used two different ways. One is with capital L, little, lowercase o, lowercase r, little, I'm doing o for all of them, but you know, so uh, r, var, d, um, lowercase d for Lord. That's really more of a title. It's referring to God's authority over us in many ways. But capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D is actually the way that we describe or talk about the name of the Lord as it appears in Scripture, Yahweh, sometimes Jehovah God. And this becomes significant because when I, for a long time, I just read Lord with, you know, just like it's a title, but it's our way of expressing the name. And the reason that we express it as Lord instead of Yahweh or Jehovah most often is because it's actually really hard to translate because in the original language, it's just the verb to be. I am. That's it. I am or Yahweh. Um, so when God, and, and so when in Exodus chapter 3, when God appeared to Moses and was going to send Moses to Egypt, to Pharaoh, uh, Moses is the first person really to ask this question in the Bible. And he asked the question, who are you? Who am I supposed to tell Pharaoh sent me to tell these people to be released? Who, who is saying, let my people go? And uh, the answer is uh, Yahweh. I am who I am. Now, that, that means a lot, that idea of I am. It means this. It means everything else is contingent upon who God is. He's the only one who self-exists. Nothing else that exists, exists on its own, but God exists on his own. Everything else exists because he wants it to. So what this means, at least, is this. I am who I have always been and who I will always be. He is the God who existed before anything existed. He's the God who would, who would exist if nothing else existed. He's the God who makes everything else exist. And he's the God who is who he is, regardless of who you want him to be. He's the God who's not like idols that people make for themselves. This is the God who is without any input from any of us about who we want him to be. That's at least what he's telling us. But a little bit later in the book of Exodus, God gives us a fuller name. And it answers our question, okay, you're the God who is, but what is the God who is really like? If you're the ground of all being and everything depends on you, what are you really like? And so in Exodus chapter 34, 6, and 7, God gives what I'm going to call his, his longer name. So Moses asked to see the glory of the Lord, and God says, you can't see me and live. So he goes by and he expresses with words the glory of the Lord. The, the Lord, the Lord, right? Yahweh, Yahweh. And then he continues. The gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished, but brings absolute and complete justice. So you, you look, and God has given his fuller name. And I was thinking, oh, that's hard to say, you know, if you're, if you're praying all the time. It's like Yahweh is a little shorter. But this is how we are to think about him. That's connected to, that, to the shorter name of Yahweh or the Lord God for us. And I was thinking about how do, how do we wrap our minds around this? And uh, just for fun, I looked up Queen Elizabeth II, her, her official title. She's officially Queen Elizabeth II, but she actually has a longer name and a longer title. So this is Queen Elizabeth. Elizabeth II, 
in full, in full Elizabeth Alexandra Mary. Official, officially, Elizabeth II, by the grace of God, of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and of her other realms and territories, Queen, head of the Commonwealth, defender of the faith. Isn't that lovely? You're kind of like, can you preach the rest of this in that voice? No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so the longer name is intended not just to say queen. It's, it's giving all the details of who she is. Like These are the things that are important about her with that title. So when Moses asks to see more of God, to see his glory, God's verbal expression of himself, out of all the words he could choose in Hebrew, English, Spanish, all the different languages of the world. This is what he said. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So God summing himself up in these few words is describing a God who is of immense love. That's who he is. So in the New Testament, when John says God is love, He's not inventing that idea for the first time. That shows up in the Old Testament. Now, I know when he says here, when he said at the end of that, uh, that uh, he, is, uh, he shows justice. He doesn't leave the wicked unpunished. For us, that's a real problem as a modern American people. But we think, how can a God of love be also a God of justice at the same time? These two things appear to be in conflict with one another. But the reality is God's justice, his anger flows out of a deep well of love within his heart. He gets angry at how people are treated because he loves people. He isn't angry about rule breaking so much as he's angry about people breaking and community breaking and heart breaking and trust breaking. He's angry at the things that we do in our sin that the law points out, but it's not simply rules, rule breaking. It's because of love and him creating us to be loving people towards those around us. And so he, he's telling us here, this is the God of the universe. This is the only God. Christianity is not a bland belief in a generic God. There is no generic God. There, that was never the case. It is this God, Yahweh, the Lord, the one who made the heavens and the earth, the one who is the judge, the one who is a promise-making God, the one who took on human flesh and human history and died for his people. That's this God that he's saying to praise. So those words are pulled through the whole Bible. And Psalm 103 is, really, if you look at what Psalm 103 is, it's an extended meditation on the name of God with all of those features, the compassion of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God being pulled all the way through Psalm 103. Right? It's an extended medication, uh, med meditation. It's a meditation. He is a God who exceeds our understanding of who he is, exceeds our hope for who he might be, and of what he would do for the frail and sinful people who are like us. So he gives us an, uh, an invitation, he gives us a name, and he gives us a promise. And we see that in verse 18, where he talks about people who keep his covenant. That's who his blessing is for, is people who keep his covenant. So he's, he's, uh, he's not, it's not a promise simply to do something. It's a promise to be something. So when God makes a covenant with his people, he's not saying simply, I'm going to do this. He's actually binding himself to his people. That's what the covenant is, a binding of the relationship. It's like the marriage vows that we take. So when I got married, now the vows ran a little bit something like this. Um, I, Stephen, take you, Rebecca, 
to be my wedded wife, to live together in the holiest state of marriage. I promise to love you, cherish you, honor you, and keep you in sickness and health, and forsaking all others, keep you only unto me, so long as we both shall live. That's the promise, the promise of the relationship. And when God made covenants with his people, and you can read about it with Noah and Abraham and Moses and David, and you can read about it in the New Testament where Jesus talks about the cup of the new covenant in his blood, God is binding himself to his people and saying, I am committed to you because I love you. Because I love you, I'm binding myself to you. He doesn't say because I love you, I don't, we don't need an agreement. He's saying because I love you, I am binding myself to you for eternity. Right? So, I want you to recognize, not simply that he's binding himself to us, but I want you to reflect on the passage. Can you pull that up just behind me? Just even the first part where it talks about heals all your diseases and everything. I want you to recognize how one-sided God's promises are in Psalm 103. He's writing, he's speaking to people who haven't, aren't, and can't do anything to deserve or accomplish what he's being taught. We can't heal ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We can't do anything to make it up. He forgives the sinner. He heals the sick. He redeems the incapacitated. All the failings that we experience and we participate in life, God is there in the midst of it to meet us. For all the good things that we experience in life, God is there to bring it about. And so when we're at our lowest in life, God meets us there. When we're in the highest point of our lives, God is there. We don't make it happen at all. And in verse 14, He says, you're dust. I'm dust. You're dust. And in verse 13, he tells us why this is significant. He has compassion on us, even though we're dust. I'm weak. And you're weak. I'm weak physically. I'm weak emotionally. I'm I'm weak across the board in these things. We project strength because we think that's that's what makes somebody valuable in our culture, strength. But none of us are really strength. Some of us are just better pretenders than others. And in this, uh, what he's telling us is God meets us in our weakness. That's when we experience God the most. Our weakness doesn't drive God away from us and say, you know, I'm only accepting the powerful and strong and the very committed. It's him saying, I'm coming to the weak. This is from Thomas, a good one. He's an old Puritan writer. And he wrote a book called The Heart of Christ in Heaven for Sinners on Earth. And the whole premise of the book is this, is we see Jesus loving sinners on earth while he was on earth. And most of us have this idea that now that Jesus is in heaven, he's forgotten about people on earth. He's only aware of people that are there in heaven with him. But he still loves sinners like us on earth as much as he loved anybody that we read about in the Gospels. So this is what Goodwin writes. He says, two things stir Christ's compassion. Our afflictions, the suffering we deal with, and almost unbelievably, our sins. Listen to this. He said, your very sins move Jesus to pity more than to anger. His pity is increased the more towards you, even as the heart of a father is to a child that has some loathsome disease. His hatred shall all fall, and that only upon the sin, to free you of it by its ruin and destruction but his heart shall be the more drawn out to you. And this as much when you lie under sin as under any other affliction. Therefore, fear not. What shall separate us from Christ's love? 
So what is he communicating? God loves you as much when you've sinned and blown it and you're angry and hurt and you hate yourself. He loves you as much then as he did when he was dying for you on the cross, when Jesus was dying. He loves you as much in the middle of that sin as he, as he will when you stand before him spotless and clean without the ability to sin anymore. He loves you as much then, these other places, as he loves you in the midst of your brokenness and sin. And so all of these things we're reading in Psalm 103 uh, are about God entering into a binding relationship with people who are broken and sinful and fallen, and that creates a real problem. Because he said in the divine name that he will not leave the guilty unpunished, but he's also said he forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. How does he do that? I mean, if, if God is going to forgive people, then he's just going to have to gloss over their sin and, not, and they don't pay for it. Or if he punishes sin, well, then he's not forgiving them. So how is this reconciled in the person of Christ? Well, in 1 Timothy 1.15, we read this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's in Christ that we see God's justice poured out so that his mercy could be poured out. Let me show you. Oh, this is an egg. Can you tell? This is an egg. Out of our refrigerator, you got, you want, do you need, it stinks up here because these are, these are, it smells like an egg. Okay, so an egg. And uh, what this egg is going to represent in my little illustration, my thing I'm going to reenact up here, is you. Right? Not you right now, but the whole of your life. Your past, your present, your future, your eternity, everything. And because you are a sinner and you deserve wrath, we have another prop that I need to use here. And this is the hammer of justice. Okay? This is God's justice, the gavel of the judge. And uh, I'm going to put a towel on the floor just for you. Is that okay? And you Just so you don't have to clean that up later. Okay. So here okay now whatever it is you think hell is i'm just kind of imagine this hammer being that it's but the bible describes hell as being eternal and remove its darkness it's fire it's all the worst things you can imagine it's being separated from uh life it's being separated from god it's being separated from god's people it's being separated it's never pleasant but the Bible says what we deserve, because if we're persistent in sin, the thing you have to do is be put in eternal timeout, right? If you can't play nice, you've got to be removed. And so this represents God's justice. Now, before we do this, um, there's another piece to this puzzle that you need to see. Because for those who are in Christ, there's a third party in the midst of this. Because it's not just me in my sin, but there's also... Uh, the can. Uh, this represents Jesus. This represents him in his life, his death, his ministry, but particularly in this illustration, it represents his death on our behalf. So those of you in the back not be able to, might not be able to see this so well. What I'm going to do is take this egg and I'm going to cover it up with a can so that now the egg is covered by Jesus. So when God's wrath falls, it falls upon Jesus and doesn't fall upon us. So in that way, the justice of God is poured out 
on Jesus so that I would receive grace and so that you would receive grace. Now listen, uh, this is the only hope that we have and this is what he's talking about in this passage for us is a God who would pour out justice on him, who would, who would take the judgment on himself for our sakes. And what he calls us to do is to believe. And he goes into what happens to our sin. He says in this passage that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far now your sin is removed. from. You'll never see it again. God will never see it again. He'll never take it into account again. It's moved to the far horizon. Chase, chase the setting sun. You'll never come across your sin ever again. You'll never see it because Jesus has dealt with it finally. So this passage is pointing us away to Jesus. And what's beautiful about all of this is he forgives all of our sins, which means he knows who you are. He knows the things you're afraid to admit to other people. And Jesus said, hand me the register of all their sins and I'll pay for it. Here's a question. Does that really include all your sins? Every single last one of them? Every single last one. I met a Christian man years ago. I didn't know the story about him until uh, fairly recently. He grew up in the 1950s. He was a teenager living in the South. They're driving down a, a country road. It's getting later in the evening. There was a black man who was walking on the side. He had his Coke bottle, and, and uh, this guy was on the passenger side. He had his Coke bottle in his hand. And they drove past this black man. He threw his bottle out of the window and hit this man in the back of the head. And this guy dropped on the side of the road. And they kept driving and laughing about it. Now, fast forward 40, 50 years later, he's looking back on that just completely. He's become a Christian. He's racked with guilt over this. And he looks at these kinds of things that he did in his youth. And he's wondering, can God forgive that? And the answer is, yeah, absolutely. God forgives all of our sins. Whoever comes to Christ in faith, all of their sins are forgiven. He's never going to meet that man again in the sight of heaven, as far as I know. Uh, they never met again. Uh, but when we see God do this, we recognize he knows me and he loves me. J.I. Packer wrote this. He said, there is tremendous relief in knowing that God's love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way I'm so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. Right? The church was never about good people. It's about redeemed people. It's about people who have experienced the grace of this God in their lives. And it's about people who have entered into the dance, Right? We've entered in. We see, who, we see who we are. We see who God is. And we want, I want to be in that dance. I want to be on the dance floor with him. I want to learn from him. I want to experience that kind of joy. We enter the dance. And that's really, believe it or not, what he means when he talks in this passage about uh, this, being for, this forgiveness being for those who fear the Lord. Fear, in our minds, has kind of a negative connotation. But it ought not. Um, fear, biblically, is very close to the idea of faith, biblically. What it means is this is your primary concern. This is the thing that's in the front of your mind that you think about a lot. 
Think about all the time. It shapes all of your other thoughts. So let me put an image in your mind. Hurricane season's coming. Ta-da. So all of you, autom- you thought, oh, wait, do we have our things stored up? How do we batten down the hatches? And so as soon as it comes on the news that the, the hurricane is going to be coming up through central Florida, all of a sudden we're, st- we're taking all the toilet paper from Walmart. And we're going to get dry goods. We're making sure we have water. We have everything that we need. So all of a sudden we kick into high gear, and that becomes our central thought. I've got to take care of these things. This now, everything else now comes second to that. Or let me give you a, a more positive example, okay? is uh, well, uh, I probably, doing college ministry, I did about 60 weddings, right? So I was there when people got engaged and they're like, hey, will you do our marriage counseling? And what I found is, and it's always the bride, it's hard, never the, the groom, except in one case, that's a different story. And, uh, but the bride always, once the engagement happens, life is consumed with bridal magazines, looking at invitations, looking at floral arrangements, looking at everything. This is, everything else is taking a backseat to that. Exams, forget exams. I'm getting married when I get through. That's just the way that the students I dealt with were. And so that happens. That becomes the number one thing that people are thinking about. When you're going on vacation, like the week leading up to vacation, that's all you're thinking about, right? I've got to do these things. We've got to get somebody keep the dog, or we'll have a dead dog when we get back. All the things that go in your head, everything's secondary, right? So there's a call uh, to put God first and to enter into the joy of this moment, the blessing, the blessing, the dance. So what's the situation around Psalm 103? We don't know. Some of the Psalms, we know exactly what the life situation was with David when he wrote it, but we don't know. And the reason that we don't know is it probably doesn't matter because when you're in your best times in life, it's a time to be grateful and and speak to God in gratitude. When you're going through the worst things in your life, it's a time to lean upon God and say, I'm coming to you because you're a God who forgives, helps, restores. I'm coming to you. I'm entering into the dance with you. And sometimes, sometimes depending on what's asked of you, You have to enter into Psalm 103 and the blessings of the Lord, all of his benefits, so that you can enter into a difficult, difficult obedience. Some of you know the name Corrie ten Boom. Uh, She, uh, what was it, Hiding Place was the name of a book that was about her life. She was, she lived uh, as a little girl in Holland during World War II and her family were watching, they were housing some uh, Jews who were trying to get away from the Nazis. Her family was arrested, and she and her sister, Betsy, were sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp. And while they were there, Betsy died. So Corey's telling the story about something that happened. After the war, she went from Holland back into Germany, and she was telling the message about Jesus and the great forgiveness that is found in Jesus. And this is what she told them. She said, When we confess our sins, God casts them into the deepest ocean and they are gone forever, which is basically what the scriptures say. Our sins are thrown into the ocean, never to be seen again. So she was speaking in one of the churches in Germany. And uh, after she was through, she said people didn't speak much in Germany at the time. They just kind of got up and filed out. But this one man made his way up to where she was. And when she saw him, she recognized him. He was one of the guards in Ravensbrook. Um, and he came to her and he extended his hand to her and he said, a fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that as you say, 
All of our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And so here's this man, she's, and she's triggered. Right? That was a traumatic event. Her sister died there. She's triggered. And she sees this man, and this is what she said about her feelings at that moment. She said, I who had speaking, spoken so glibly on forgiveness fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze, like, like fright or flight. She's in flight. She's in freeze mode. And this is what he said. He said, you mentioned the Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there. But since that time, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, that hand came out. And he said, will you forgive me? And so she said, it felt like hours that she was standing there, at least several minutes, but she knows it was only seconds that she's wrestling with, what am I going to do with this? And uh, she knew that God had to forgive her every day because she was a sinner. She knew that God had commanded her in scripture to forgive other people just as you've been forgiven. But she knew she couldn't do it. So she prayed. She said, Jesus, help me. Silently so he couldn't hear. Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so she said, woodenly, her arm came up and she placed it in his hand. And as soon as she did that, she said it was like electricity went down her arm. She said she could feel this kind of rushing warmth of emotion come up as she took this man's hand. And she said it was electric. She said this healing warmth flooded into her whole being, bringing tears to her eyes. And this is what she said to the man. She said, I forgive you, brother, with all of my heart. And so for a long moment, they just stood there, clasping hands, looking at each other, former guard, former prisoner. And she said, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Why? She entered the dance. This is who God is. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And she entered that dance. She entered the joy. And the only way she could do that was through prayer and remembering the benefits, the benefits of belonging. The mercy and love and faithfulness of God are ultimate. Why? Because God is ultimate. He's the I am. But I am the God who is compassionate and gracious. He's eternal. He's the bedrock reality underneath our momentary experiences here. Grief won't last. Sickness won't last. Guilt won't last. It's been taken away. But joy will last. Gratitude will last. Enjoyment will last. Peace will last. Love. Love will last. Because it's who God is. The Lord God is a God of surprising, extravagant, undeserved, and persistent love. Let's pray. We thank you, O Lord, for your great love to sinners like us. We thank you for the example of people like Corey Ten Boom and uh, learning to forgive even when it's difficult, even when it's hard. We thank you for the reality that you're the God who is. There's not some other God. There aren't competing gods. There's just you. So we pray that you would help us to see your glory and your grace and your goodness and for us to be shaped by that in our lives. 
to have all of our guilt removed, all of our shame removed, but to also have all of our bitterness removed, our resentment removed, and to enter into that dance of the God who loves, of the God who forgives, of the God who embraces. Would you bless us? And would you enable us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.